Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, December 21st, 2020. I hope you all had a great weekend. In today's podcast, Turn, 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 Breach Presentation and External Cephalic Version, Melka and I talk about options for pregnant women whose babies are in the breach presentation or head up. We talk about why we don't deliver these babies vaginally anymore, as well as the option to attempt an external cephalic version or ECV, which is where we try to manually rotate the baby from head up to head down. Pretty cool stuff. On Thursday, I'll be joined by Dr. Rachel Gerber, who is a former student of mine and now is a fancy fertility specialist to talk about egg freezing. Also, for those of you who are interested to hear me at the other end of the interview, I'm on a few podcasts this week as a guest. I was on the Informed Pregnancy podcast last week, and I'm scheduled to be on again this week. So be on the lookout for those where Dr. Elliot Berlin interviews me about pregnancy. Also, I'm scheduled to be on the My Essential Birth podcast this week with Courtney Clegg and Stephanie King. You might remember them from our awesome doula podcast two weeks ago, so be on the lookout for that as well. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Melka, welcome back to Helpful Woman. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me back. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking today about a procedure called external cephalic version. We call it ECV for short. It's sometimes just the last word version for short. And explain what, what exactly are we are we talking about here today? The ECV is the procedure to turn a baby that's breech, meaning head up, to be head down. Right. And so why would anyone even think of doing that? Like, why would you try to change the position of a baby during pregnancy? For a variety of reasons we'll get into. We try to avoid delivering these babies vaginally. The alternative would be doing a C-section for a breech baby. Right. And I think that's a, sort of a broader topic and that we that we should focus on before talking about the procedure is this idea of breech presentation where the baby, again, like you said, is head up, but down the end of pregnancy and how we manage them, specifically how we deliver them. And the interesting thing I always found is that it's actually uncommon, like 95 plus percent of babies by the time, you know, mom goes into labor, the baby find its way into head down. Mm -hmm. And we don't really understand how that happens. There's a process, but we don't really get it. Is it just geometry that sort of the shape of the uterus facilitates that? Or is there something in the baby's, you know, brain that somehow the baby knows how to get down there? And there is some evidence actually supporting that because babies with certain abnormalities of the brain are more likely to end up breech. And mm -hmm. there's some thought that maybe, you know, there's something inherent in the baby to find, so to speak, that position, which is amazing and fascinating, but we don't really understand it. But ultimately, it's uncommon. Most mm -hmm. babies are head down. And when the babies are head up, they used to all be delivered vaginally, mm -hmm. right? Like 100% of them. And it's one of the reasons why C-section rates have gone up over the years, because we started delivering those babies more and more by C-section. What was the reason that people switched from delivering them vaginally to C-section? Was it fear of injury to the baby? Or was it that this, the labors didn't progress normally? I think it was more fear of injury to the baby. You have one bad outcome and it sort of changes your outlook on all of these procedures. I think over the years, there was concern over worse outcomes with the babies and then fewer people did it. 
and right. then a few people taught people how to do it. And then you now are at a point where you don't have many people. Right. Really, it's an interesting story because most babies who are breech and were delivered vaginally do fine. Right. They're fine right after the birth. Long term, everything's OK. But the way babies are shaped, the head is the biggest part of the baby to come out. And so when a baby comes out head first and the mom's pushing and pushing and once the head comes out, generally the body comes out very easily afterwards. There are some exceptions to that, but generally that's what happens. But with the breech, it's sort of not always the case because it's sort of trying to deliver the baby from the smallest diameter to the largest diameter. And so as the baby's coming out, there's a higher chance potentially of something getting injured on the way out, whether it's you know an arm or the shoulder or maybe the head getting stuck potentially. And then it takes a longer time to deliver. And during that time, maybe there's less oxygen today. So those are sort of the concerns. And people who are delivering babies were extremely skilled at breech deliveries. And again, these things rarely happened. But if they did, as you said, it leaves an impression on people. And what also happened over the same time period, you know, we're talking, you know, over the past hundred years is C-sections got so much safer. So the alternative to breech delivery used to be like, we can't do that. Like it's a C-section. That's horrible. You know, it's so, it's such a big deal to do, but as they got safer over time, sort of the alternative wasn't as unappealing. Mm -hmm. And so more and more people converted from delivering babies breech vaginally to C-section, as you said, then it starts to snowball because then they do fewer then the people who are learning learn fewer, then they don't have the same skill set and they feel less comfortable doing it. So they're more likely to lean towards C-section. And this was happening steadily from, you know, 19, probably 80 till about 2000. And then in 2000, there was a really big study that came out where they looked at breech babies and they what we call randomized the moms into either planning for a C-section or trying to deliver them vaginally. And in the group that delivered vaginally, there was a, a higher incidence of the babies having injuries, problems, mm -hmm. NICU admissions, and so forth. And that's basically when in the US and most places, breech deliveries just plummeted. Interestingly, when they looked at long-term follow-up of these babies, there really wasn't a big difference. It was more short-term issues. But by that time, like when I was training, which I trained right after that time period, we didn't do any breech deliveries really, unless it was almost an accident. You know, mom showed up and she was already delivering a breach. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't done. And so really people didn't train in it and it's not, it wasn't standard of care. So it's very unusual. I rarely see someone deliver a baby breach if it's one baby. I haven't in the 12 years now I've been at Sinai. Other, yeah. Unless, like you said, the ones that just come in delivering. Right. It's part of the reason when we had our podcast about twins, where we do deliver the second twin as a breach, because that's a it's a different circumstance than when it's just one baby, why it does require training to do, because you don't get a lot of training, you don't get any training really with singleton breaches. It's the same maneuvers, but we don't have, you know, the people again who are practicing in 1950 to 1980, we're doing them all the time. Mm -hmm. And so this was something they just did every day and not so much for us. And so it's become very unusual to try to deliver these babies vaginally. Some do. It still happens, but it's very unusual. And so an alternative is to try to move the baby's position from head up to head down to increase the chances she'll go into labor with the baby in that position and you can deliver vaginally. Mm -hmm. And that's where the ECV comes in. And that's where the word, so external means we're putting our hands outside of mom, meaning on her belly, as opposed to internal. Cephalic is the fancy term for the head, right? For the baby's head. And version, meaning we're changing it from one position to another, from up 
to down. That's where external cephalic version mm-hmm. comes from. How is it actually done? Like, what, what would you do with your hands as the doctor doing this procedure? Just like at the, we'll get to sort of the logistics of the whole day for someone undergoing this, but what do you physically have to do? So you're just putting your hands on mom's belly and kind of pushing down with the head and pushing up on the breech and mm-hmm. pushing your hands almost like in a circular motion, mm-hmm. getting the baby to spin. Right. Like almost if the, the baby's sort of like the, the hand on a clock, you know, you're trying to move it. So the head instead of being at 11 o'clock is now at six o'clock. It's a tight space. So they don't frequently just like flip, you know, with mm-hmm. minimal effort. You have to put some effort, but also there's, that's the skill, you know, how much effort, you, you know, too much, too little, and to try to figure that out. And we can turn clockwise, so to speak, you know, towards or counterclockwise, the, yeah, or counterclockwise based on the the circuit. So that's, that's sort of what happens. And when do we, when do we do this procedure? Generally around 37 weeks. You want to do it before mom goes into labor or her water breaks just because of an increase in complications in that setting and don't want to do it too early either just because of potential risks. Yeah. It's it's one of these things where there's so many variables pushing you to do it later and so many variables pushing you to do it earlier. We do end up at 37 weeks, give or take. The, The reasons you would not want to wait, like you said, she may go into labor beforehand, then you really can't do it. And now she's having a C-section. Also, the baby doesn't get bigger, makes mm-hmm. it harder to do. And also, if you wait frequently, the baby will what we call descend or engagement and get lower down into mom's pelvis, like where the pelvic bones are. And the, as the butt gets lower, it's just harder to move out of there. So it's like sort of better if the baby's floating high, which makes sense. So that's why you would want to do it earlier. But on the flip side, pardon the pun, if you want to do it earlier, the issues are number one, the baby may turn on its own. And so you don't need to do it. Like if you wait longer, the babies will turn on their own to head first, many of them. Number two, if she goes into labor or there's a complication, the baby's delivered, now you have a premature baby. Mm -hmm. And so generally we do around 37 weeks. It seems to balance it. Some people do it slightly earlier, some people slightly later, but basically that's when we try to do it. And when we talk about this with women, a lot of them are surprised that it's even an option. It seems almost like medieval to them that we can do this and they're afraid that we're going to hurt the baby. Yeah. So how, how do you address those concerns that women have that this is going to somehow harm the baby? So, you know, when you look at big studies, when this is done, you don't see worse outcomes in babies that are turned versus not turned. And then the specifics for a particular case, you know, we always do this in the hospital. So we're able to intervene if there is an emergency and safely deliver a baby fast. Right. We have fetal monitoring that we do in between attempts and afterwards for several hours, making sure that the baby's still staying healthy. Right. It's interesting. When women ask us this question, I find that they're usually asking us one question and it doesn't even dawn on us. I mean, they're worried that that we're going to like like the baby's not like a broken bone or mm-hmm. like bruising. So it's interesting. The babies, they're underwater, right? They live in a water bag. And so when we're maneuvering them, they don't feel like trauma in that sense. Like babies aren't born with bruises and, you know, yeah. from this procedure. And I think that's sort of like their biggest fear. And I'm saying, no, no, like that's not even like an option. That doesn't happen with this. The concerns we're thinking about is this might put her into labor, which happens, it's like, you know, five to 10% of the time, which isn't really, I wouldn't call it like a risk, but maybe like a consequence that this could happen. And if we were successful and she went into labor, like, okay, heads down, you're in labor. Maybe that's a good thing. If we were not successful and she went into labor, like, okay, so you'll have your C-section today instead of mm-hmm. what we would have done it a couple of weeks from now. The risk of something else happening, like the heart rate dropping and 
not coming up or starting to bleed or something like that is it's possible, which is why we do it in the hospital, but it's really in the range of 1% or less. It's pretty unusual. I mean, over the years, I've seen a, a couple of those situations. But again, since we're in the hospital, we're actually in the operating room. We're like yeah. ready to go. The baby's out within a couple of minutes and everyone's fine. But that sort of event is still very rare, fortunately. And that's really the main risk of this happening. During the procedure, sometimes the baby's heart rate goes down, but then we release some of the baby's heart rate comes back up. That's usually just a you know, response to being squeezed or something like that. And so it's considered a very safe procedure. Are there any women you would not offer it to? You wouldn't offer it to somebody who's not going to have a vaginal delivery anyway. Right. There's certain factors you look into to determine success. Mm, is okay. it an exceptionally big baby that you right. don't think is going to turn? Is the fluid low where there's going to be less room for the baby to turn? Does she have fibroids or a septum like a wall in the uterus? Yeah. Which could block the baby from turning. Because in those cases, you're looking at the risk benefit profile a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, where you're taking the same risk with a much lower likelihood of success. I sort of feel the same way that there are a few people we don't offer this to because like you said, they really shouldn't be delivering vaginally anyways. You know, it's like a placenta previa, like whatever. It doesn't really matter which direction the baby is or something, you know, of that nature. And then there's these situations where we're not really sure, like if the baby's measuring very big or sometimes very small. We're concerned, mm -hmm. you know, the safety of doing it or, you know, with fluid and all the things you mentioned. What do you tell people typically, like what's the baseline success rate of, of having the baby end up head down after the procedure? 75%. Yeah. You well, know, I think mm -hmm. on the lower end, 50%. On the higher end for the ideal candidate, 95%. I find that the biggest factor that'll take someone from a 50 to a 95 is has she had children before? Yeah. I mean, the, someone on their first baby, it's generally less likely to be successful. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it is her uterus tends to be a little bit like thicker and tighter. And sometimes her abdominal wall tends to be a little bit, you know, stronger. She's, it's just, you know, that's the nature of once you start having a lot of babies, your body gets more accustomed mm -hmm. to that. And it could also be just general, for lack of a better word, stretchiness of the uterus as you have more babies. So someone that's on their first baby, I tell them it's usually about 50-50. And someone who's had more, I tell them, yeah, 75 to 90, somewhere in that range is much better. And then other things like the fluid and mm -hmm. how far pregnant she is. And, you know, there's some things you could look at, which help the prediction. Uh, her size sometimes matters, you know, just a lot of factors. But the biggest one is has she had children before. But either way, 50-50, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. It's <laughs> not, they're pretty good numbers. And then what about things like an epidural? Right. So when someone has this, do you normally recommend she has some sort of pain relief before this? I do offer it to everybody. I think the data shows in nullips, meaning someone having their first baby, there is an improvement in success rate, but I really leave it up to the patient in terms of what their comfort level is. I'm always willing to try without. The downside is you try, it's uncomfortable, and then you have to stop, and then you can get them an epidural or a spinal and then try again. The procedure does hurt without an <laughs> epidural. I mean, it's not pleasant to have someone doing this on your belly. There's no question about it. I mean, it doesn't hurt the baby. It hurts the mother. Mm -hmm. It's painful to have someone do this. And so for women who want to not have pain during the procedure, for sure, they should get an epidural or spinal, which is safe. And it's the same thing we use for women in labor or having a C-section. Or sometimes women are, it's harder for them to undergo this. And sometimes people flinch a lot or they move, which is you know understandable. And so an epidural helps with that. And that's probably why it improves the success rate in some people. You're just able to maneuver a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. 
uh, because she's not in pain, you know, not sort of fighting you, so to speak, which is, again, not, not a problem that someone's fighting you. Like, that's a normal response to someone, you know, grabbing your belly and trying to move it. So it, it's just something that makes it easier. And the other reason some people feel more comfortable than epidural, because if there were an emergency, there's like already anesthesia that you can operate. Mm -hmm. It's not that that's not the reason we do it. But okay, you know, in that 1% of the time, it's a little bit easier. Or if she goes into labor, there's an epidural there already. But that's not really the main reason we would place it. And what about a lot of people give medicine before mm -hmm. to relax the uterus? Is that something that you do regularly? Probably not routinely, but I think more often than not, I yeah. do. Nitro over turb. I prefer. Yeah. I think the nitro works a bit faster. Nitro and turb sounds like American gladiators. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I like turb. I think I like nitro Those better. could be our gladiator names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one is one is tributylene, one is yes, nitroglycerin. Yeah, those are actual medications <laughs> with real names. They just are abbreviated into gladiator names, which is pretty cool when you're in the <laughs> operating room. Give me nitro. We need them. And I've had times with the tributylene that people just get this dramatic response of tachycardia, like their heart rate goes up. Yeah. And all of a sudden she's laying there, she's like, my heart's beating out of my chest. <laughs> I like I have to jump out of my skin right now. Right, and right. I think it just sort of adds to the kind of anxiety that people right. often have going right. into this. Yeah. It's amazing because when, when we, were, we were training, we'd give it, you would sort of keep giving it until that happened because you'd say, ah, now we know it's working, <laughs> which is all right. I mean, it, it did relax the uterus. So that's something that we, we frequently do in that sense. And then the other thing is, you know, when we're doing this at 37 weeks, one of the interesting aspects of this is if we, let's say, don't do it at 37 weeks, there is a percentage of women who the babies are going to turn on their own between 37 weeks Mm -hmm. to 39 weeks, meaning of the people who you either don't do it on or you try and you quote unquote fail and the head's still up. By the time we would do their C-section 39 weeks, there's like five to 10% of those babies end up head down anyways, sort of like laughing at you. Ha ha, <laughs> I'll show you. On the flip side, for people in whom we are successful, some of them, the baby does flip that back to breach, <laughs> <laughs> which is again, sort of the, you know, them giving you the, the, <laughs> the finger on the yeah, inside. Exactly. So you yeah. think you're going to get any go head down. And and again, that's something we tell people about that it's not a guarantee that just because we get the head down at 37 weeks, because it's not, even though we turn it head down, it's still, there's still a way to go for it to get sort of what we call engaged mm -hmm. into the pelvis. And that's also why sometimes if people go into labor very soon after this procedure, they have a higher risk of a C-section in labor because the head doesn't really get into the right place it needs to in the right directions. Also, one of the reasons we would, when we can, avoid inducing someone right afterwards. You know, sometimes right. some of it is early term births, slightly increased risk with the baby. So try to get them to 39. Sometimes the head turns but doesn't drop. Right. There are times where we have to deliver someone at 37 weeks. Let's say she has preeclampsia. Right. We would, but there is that higher risk. The head really needs to navigate that pelvis. And it happens sort of slowly over time when it sort of nestles its way into the right position. And to try to do that very quickly. And it works frequently, but just less often mm -hmm. than if it happens on its own. So I agree. We generally try to wait afterwards before delivering, but sometimes we don't have that choice. So if someone is seeing you, she's you know, healthy, there's no like problems. And she's, let's say it's her first baby and she's 36 weeks pregnant and the baby's breech. How do you talk to her about the option of the ECV, whether she'd want to do it, whether mm -hmm. she wouldn't want to do it? How does that conversation go? You know, I generally bring up both options. One option is try to turn the baby at 37 weeks. 
the other option is schedule the C-section around 39 weeks. Mm -hmm. Go over the risks with the version like we talked about. You know, maybe it doesn't work. Not that it's a risk, but you go through all this and it doesn't work. You know, some women have a little bit of a fear of it. I think you said people see it as like almost barbaric. Like you're just (laughs) like pushing and a lot of women are like, this seems so uncivilized. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Versus just waiting and then doing the C-section at 39 weeks. Right. And I think it's just sort of like an individual person's motivation. You know, some people are more tied to a vaginal delivery than others. Safety-wise, I think they're both equal. So I think it's mainly that preference. Yeah, I don't find it's generally a decision that women make because of specific safety or, again, I think it's usually just in their gut. Some people are sort of like squeamish about it. They're like, what? They're like, no. They're like, I'm not on board with that. And I'll say that to people too. I'll be like, what does your gut say? Or sometimes when I'm talking to them about this and I say, you know, we have you at the hospital, we're turning and I'm like using my hands and they're giving me this look and their eyebrows (laughs) raising and I'm like, don't look like you, (laughs) you're on board with this. But yeah, I think it's very much like just a gut assault. Yeah. And then for the women who they find are like, oh yeah, whatever, that sounds cool. And they wanted a vaginal delivery. They're like, yeah, let's try it. Mm-hmm. And again, because we're, you know, we're reassuring them that it's safe. We're watching you. We're not, you know, proposing something that we think is a problem. We're proposing something that's usually done and recommended and it's at least recommended to be offered. No one has to do it, obviously. But then for the women who are just like not on board, they're like, no, I'm not, I'm not taking a part of it. Okay. So someone decides they're going to do it. So what happens logistically? Like what would her day be like? The day, like, you know, we scheduled for, you know, Tuesday morning. She's 37 weeks. It's all done in the hospital. And I look at it, you're sort of preparing for the quote, not worst case scenario, but you, you go in prepared that you're going to have to do an emergency C-section. So you want the patient to have an empty stomach, to have had her blood work done. Nowadays, we're doing COVID tests for this. Right. Get to the hospital, check in. You get brought into a room, put in a bed, IV, put on a monitor. You'll talk to us. You'll talk to the residents helping us, the anesthesiologists. We do an ultrasound. Yes. (laughs) I'm getting there. (laughs) We will do an ultrasound. We don't want to turn the baby from head down back to head up. Many people show up for this (laughs) procedure. They get an ultrasound. Heads down, success, and they go home. Yes. Yeah. That happens a lot. Even better when they that happens when they're breech at 39 weeks and yeah. ready for their section and the baby's head down. And they're like, uh, can I have a section anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I was already. Have, have, I was ready for today. Right. I got the baby nurse booked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my preference is to do this in the operating room. I think it's just there's more room if there is an emergency. You have everything and everyone you need right away. But. I don't always require it. Some places don't. Some places do it in like some like a labor room or an mm-hmm. antepartum suite or something, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. but it, I, I agree. Either way, we do in the operating. It's just the biggest room. Also, at New York City hospitals, it's hard to get. <laughs> it's hard to find rooms that are big enough for people. real estate. So you go in the operating room. If you're doing a spinal, the anesthesia team will give you the medication. You lay down, look again with the sonogram, monitor the heartbeat for a couple of minutes, and then again use our hands pressing on the belly, trying to push to get the head to go down and the breech, the butt to go up. Right. And then you try for like a minute or two. You kind of feel pretty quickly if it's working. Again, we have a resident with us that'll look with the sonogram as well. Right. And then we'll put the fetal heart monitor back on. Right. You'll almost always see a drop in the heart rate. I tell people that it's pretty common when you do this, that the heart rate will be low for a minute, three, four minutes. Yeah. And it almost always gets better afterwards. Right. And if it doesn't, I mean, you do that monitoring periodically in between attempts and then 
at some point you just throw in the towel and say right. it's not working. Right. And that's pretty quick. I mean, the whole procedure I tell people is, you know, it's either going to work or mm-hmm. it's not. And we don't we don't go to work on you for like an hour and a half. It's like five minutes, you know. And again, we have a really good sense. You know, we try one way. If it doesn't work, we'll try the other way. Then we'll go back. But after like, you know, two or three or four attempts, if it's not working, it's not working. We don't yeah. we, we try not to be too crazy. Sometimes with you try one person. Yeah. Sometimes you try two people where right. I might say, OK, I'm going to push the head this way. I'll say to right. someone else, you push the breach that way. Right. I almost fine within a minute or two. You know if it's going to work or not. Yeah. And this is also one. It's one of these things where it's all tactile. It's with your hands. You, and that's part of the training is to just feel like, where's the baby? How do I get the baby up out of the pelvis yes. and what to do with your hands and your fingers? And it's it's one of these things you have to do them to sort of have a sense mm-hmm. of, you know, is the baby moving? Is it not? And then also, you know, you have to have a sense where's the back versus the front versus the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Front of that. You have to sort of get all those things. And then so what happens when it's when it's over? So the if five minutes are gone, you're successful, you're unsuccessful. What happens? So you watch the heart rate, you make sure it's back to normal, that you're seeing all the reassuring signs, right. and then you move out of the operating room, typically to the recovery area, mm-hmm. and wait for a couple hours. Monitoring the heartbeat, making sure you're not seeing any changes within the next few hours, letting the spinal anesthetic wear off, right? and then go home. Yeah, I mean, she's not in labor and everything's fine. She's going to go home. Again, whether we were successful or unsuccessful, if we were successful, she goes home, baby's head down, we'll see you in the office next week, whatever, same unsuccessful. The only difference is really if she goes into labor, you mm-hmm. know, and she was, and we were successful, baby's head down, we'll be planning for a vaginal delivery. And if we were unsuccessful, we would do a C-section then. And the same thing after she goes home, if she's in labor five days later, it really depends just at that time, where's the head? It's like a half day total for mm-hmm. someone, you know, when they come in and it's sometimes longer if they have to wait or this, but you know, basically the procedure itself is only about five minutes. One interesting thing we should definitely talk about is and we get asked this a lot when women have a baby that's in breech presentation are other ways to potentially turn the baby. So this is the way that's the ECV, the version is the way that's been studied, been tested, what we do, this is what's recommended, you know, all these things. But if you go online, you'll find a whole bunch of other potential ways to turn the baby, various uh, like exercises, like positions mom can get into to maybe move the baby or acupuncture, or this, there's a certain, something called moxibustion, which is a certain like uh, incense you basically, uh, amazingly, you light like by your feet. There's a lot of these things out there. What do you tell women when they ask you about them? Honestly, I tell women they're welcome to try anything they want, but don't get hurt. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I don't think the data on those things are good. You know, I think if anything, the data shows they don't work, but I think women appreciate the chance to try this stuff. You know, with the positions, you know, that's the stuff you like hang on an ironing board off the back of your couch with your legs up and all this stuff. And like, I've had one or two people try that and fall off. Right, right. (laughs) Or if you don't do yoga, this is not the time to do the 90 minute yoga class your friend said work to turn her baby. Right. It's, you know, it's hard because what, what ends up happening is a lot of people have babies in breech presentation and pregnancy. And as you get closer to your due date, babies start to turn to head first, right? So we said like less than 5% of babies will be head up at the time of delivery. But when you're at 24 weeks, 50% of them will be head up. And it sort of, they slowly make their way. So if a woman has a baby that's in the breech presentation, and no matter where she is in pregnancy, and no matter what she does to try to alleviate that, there's a percent, whether a high percent or a low percent, they're going to end up head down. And so what ends up happening is you read either a case series of 20 women who had breech babies and they did A, B, and C, 
and 16 of those 20 babies turned to head down. Wow, 80%. That's <laughs> awesome. But, you know, the details are how far pregnant were they when they did it? Or were there 20 other women who they didn't include in the study who it didn't work? And, and so when you look at sort of better design studies that compare doing one of those things to doing nothing but just waiting, the number of babies who end up head down seem to be about the same. The only thing that's ever really been shown to change that number is actually this, this procedure to physically move the baby. Now, does it mean that none of those things could work? Well, no, of course they could work. I mean, who knows in any individual or this? And so I'm also pretty lax. If someone wants to try them, I'm like, yeah, great. You know, acupuncture is safe. It's wonderful. If you want to do it, go do it. Like, I hope it works. And if it does, wonderful. And I, I agree. I say like, just don't like someone's going to try to contort your body. Like, just be careful, be careful with these things. But I think that people should also be very, very wary about just reading stuff online where someone gives a testimonial mm-hmm. said, you know, I had this and I went to this person and my baby turned to head down. A lot of that stuff is misleading in that sense. Not that they're telling something false, but it's misleading because it implies that the reason the baby turned to head down is because they saw this person and did certain things. Whereas you know, it could have just as easily said, you know, my baby was head up and, you know, I binge watched, you know, season two of Lost <laughs> and now my baby was head down. And so it doesn't mean that it did it, though maybe Lost would do it. I'm not sure. We have to talk more about TV shows on this podcast, I think. Uh, so okay. I would think it would be Game of Thrones season eight. That it just wants to make an escape and not. <laughs> oh, that's the season. No more Game of Thrones. Oh, season eight would Get be the one. Get me out of here. Yeah, that would be the one. It definitely that would <laughs> It turn the tides. I agree. All right. Great. So that was the external cephalic version podcast. We are in favor of it. Just, yes. you know, to be clear, it's it's not just us, but like by we, like obstetricians, this is, you know, nationally something that is recommended that the doctors should trained to do this. And if they can't, they should refer to someone who does it. And it should be offered to women where the baby's in a breech presentation closer to 37 weeks, unless there's a reason not to. And so we offer, we talk, and I think most women, at least that I run into, want us to try. And like we said, some don't, and that's fine too. We're always happy to you know wait and see what happens. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. All right, we'll have you again. Thanks for talking about ECV. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.